After the sermon, let us sing from Psalter number 204. After the sermon number 204. Dear congregation, from time to time we reflect and think back over our lives and different seasons of our life. What kind of seasons has it been? Maybe it's been a good season in our life, or maybe it's been a difficult season in our life. Maybe it's been a season of prosperity, or maybe it's been a season of adversity. Maybe it's been a season of spiritual progress, or maybe it's been a season of spiritual regress. Now, sometimes we need help to reflect and think back. And Jeremiah helps us this morning <coughs> by telling us on, about his reflections. And he wants us to come to the same conclusion that he has come to that leads him to confess and worship. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, faithfulness is a gift to have a spouse that is faithful a parent who is faithful, a friend who is faithful. And what about the Lord? Has he been faithful to us? Has, have we found him to be reliable, dependable? And what if everything seems to be going wrong in our life? Still, we need to see and to say with Jeremiah, great is thy faithfulness. That's what you can write over the sermon this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We'll see three things. First of all, the backdrop of despair. Secondly, the confession of hope. And thirdly, the relationship in grace. Great is thy faithfulness. We'll see three things. First of all, the backdrop of despair. Secondly, the confession of hope. And thirdly, the relationship in grace. Now, it's not always easy to have trust in our trials, to sing praises in our problems. To do that, it means we would need a change of perspective. We see that with Jeremiah here. But let me illustrate it first, how important perspective is from an illustration taken from 1488. In 1488, a Portuguese explorer named Bartholomew Diaz became the first European to safely navigate a dangerous cape on the southern tip of Africa where the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans meet. And because of the difficulty of the journey and the rough seas and the stormy weather, uh, he named it the Cape of Storms. Later, this cape would receive another name. Some say that Bartholomew Diaz gave it also this name, the Cape of Good Hope, because of the important trade route that would develop and that would lead to India. One cape, two names. One name reflects the hazards and dangers of the journey. The other name reflects the hope and blessing of the destination. 
The one name reflects the problems that can come our way, and the other name reflects the prospect that awaits. Now, that is life. What you see depends on your perspective, and your perspective can change when you focus on the hope that is in the Lord rather than on the hazards that you encounter on the way. And we see that with Jeremiah here. In this book of Lamentations, we see Jeremiah filled with great sorrow because of destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., before Christ. The one thing that the people of Judah thought would never happen has happened. Jerusalem has been demolished and laid waste. And many people have been taken into exile. Because of Judah's iniquity and idolatry, the Lord has sent his people off into captivity. The judgment he had threatened he carries out because the people refused to repent and refused to turn back to God. And Jeremiah, who's been a faithful prophet for 40 years, but it seems that his ministry has been without much fruit. And we meet him as a greatly troubled prophet. If you read his words in this chapter or in this book, you see that he's a man who is struggling. He's filled with despair. He's despondent. You see, there isn't just the mass suffering. There is also personal suffering. There isn't just the suffering out there in the lives of others. There's the personal suffering in here that we experience. This suffering Jeremiah is speaking about doesn't just affect the group of people generally, but affects people individually. And Jeremiah becomes very personal in this chapter. In the face of the devastation and the ruin of Jerusalem, this is how he begins in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction by the hand of the rod of God. And we might say to someone like Jeremiah, well, then just pray. And Jeremiah says, I do. But God doesn't listen to me. In verse 8, he shuts out my prayer. I can't get through to him. In verse 9, he says that God has set up a blockade so he can't make any progress. In verses 10 and following, he's saying that the Lord is like a bear or like a lion who has dragged him off in the bushes and mauls him. And verse 12 God is like an archer who uses me for target practice. And he feels like giving up on life. And he's forgotten what happiness is. It's an honest description of the despair 
that Jeremiah feels. He's not pretending that everything is all right, as if everything is okay. No, here's a man of God who's perplexed, who's troubled, who's in the depths, and he doesn't just keep it to himself. He pours it out before the Lord. He does just what we did and just said in song before. His face my grief I show and tell my trouble and my woe. Do we do that? In the midst of our challenges and our struggles, do we face up to our trouble and sorrow? Or do we just pretend it's not there? Jeremiah can't pretend that everything's okay. And he knows the root cause. He knows their sin. Let me skip down to verse uh, 42. There we hear him say, we have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. We've been living, he says, in willful rebellion, contrary to God. But still in the midst of this all, he says, great is thy faithfulness. Do you see the dark backdrop to this confession? And do you realize that here is a man who's not just sitting in wall-to-wall carpeted air-conditioned room on a bright spring day in an easy chair in a comfortable place, uh, mulling over the way life has gone so good? Now, these words are spoken in the rubble and ruin of a battered city. Nebuchadnezzar has ravaged and besieged Jerusalem for something like 18 months. And it's as if we see Jeremiah walking through the rubble, looking at the gutted homes and the gutted lives. And imagine yourself among them. Looking around at rubble. Because of the devastation that's been brought by an army or a tornado. And you smell the smoke and you see the misery and you look at the agony in the faces of those around you. And in the midst of it all, Jeremiah says, Great is thy faithfulness. He has a confession of hope. That's our second point. The confession of hope. And when you see Jeremiah and what he's gone through and the troubles he's faced, you want to listen to someone like him. Especially when he says in verse 21, but now I have hope. How come? How did you move from despair to hope? Well, we see it in our text. He tells us the secret in our text. Yes, he's looked around at what is there. 
the gutted homes, the gutted lives. He's, he's evaluated the situation, but he doesn't just stop looking around him at the gutted homes and the gutted lives, but he looks to the Lord. He stopped considering the badness of life around him and instead considers the goodness of the Lord who's above him. He's looking up to the sovereign, not around at the situation. And he's telling us in the words of Psalm 42, hope in God. That's what he's doing. He turns to the Lord and he thinks of who he is. And as he does that, certain things come to mind. And in the way of remembering, he gets a grip on hope. Or hope gets a grip on him. And he thinks about how good God is. And he says it with three things. Three things. First of all, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Now, the word mercies in the Hebrew is a very rich word that speaks of love. But then a love that is marked by this resolute loyalty. It's a word that speaks of the loyal love of God, the steadfast love of God. It's not speaking so much of an emotional love, but a love of dedication, a love of commitment. It's not the love of of affection so much, but it's the love of dedication and loyalty. It's... It's the love of a committed husband or a wife for their spouse. It's the love of a parent for a child that says, I'm committed to you. I'm not going to let go of you. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not letting you go. I'm not going to write you off. This This is the word that Jeremiah uses, and it's the word that that is used in the history of David with Mephibosheth. David, remember, had made a covenant with Jonathan. And when he finds out that there is still a son of Jonathan alive, the king summons Mephibosheth to his home. It's told us in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, that might have been a nerve-wracking encounter for Mephibosheth as he was brought before the king. After all, he was a, a grandson of David's archenemy, Saul. But what all went through Mephibosheth's mind when he was brought before King David? I don't know. But I think that Mephibosheth expected the worst. But he didn't receive that. And maybe one of the first thoughts after his meeting with David was, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I haven't been finished off. I haven't perished. I haven't been consumed. Now that's the idea here. A lot has happened. But one thing has not happened. I haven't been finished off. It is of the mercies of the Lord that we have not been consumed. I haven't been destroyed. I'm still here. Now, that may not be a big mercy. 
to wake up in the morning and to see, well, I'm still alive. Maybe it's not a big mercy, but it is a mercy. And sometimes when we are in trials, we think that God doesn't care for us. But the fact that we're still alive speaks of the care of the Lord for us and the mercy of the Lord for us. There were times when we could have perished. Times when we should have perished like the sons of Korah, Dathan and Abiram in number 16. But in his mercy, he has spared us. Yes, in his mercies, it's plural. Jeremiah is saying there's an, a manifold display of mercy to us, of multiple mercies, abundant manifestations and displays of God's mercies, whereby we're still here. His committed love has held on to us even when we've let go of him. That's the first thing he says. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. But Jeremiah goes on to explain in the second thing. For his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Now, when Jeremiah uses this word for compassions, he again uses a word that has to do with love. Mercy, I said, has to do with love, but compassion has to do with love, too. But there's a difference. Mercy, I said, speaks of the commitment of love, the dedication to love. But if a husband does his duty for his wife and is loyal to his wife and is there for his wife and fulfills his task for his wife, but doesn't have any feelings of affection for his wife, no deep-seated love for his wife, I would think that the wife would not be satisfied. A wife doesn't just want the husband's hand Showing love for her. She wants the husband's heart. Feeling love for her. And that's the word that's used here. For compassion. Mercy speaks of this dedicated love. Compassion speaks of an emotional love. The feelings of love. It's how Joseph is described in Genesis 43 verse 30. After some 20 years, when he saw his brother Benjamin again, then deep inside he was moved with compassion for his brother Benjamin. It's a tender affection that a mother has for her child who is suffering. And the Lord has this deep affection for those who trust him. Jeremiah says the compassions of the Lord don't fail. They don't end. They don't run out. They don't dry up. The fountain of love for his people doesn't run dry. In fact, his compassions are new every morning, Jeremiah says. He looks back. 
And he sees God's mercies were there every morning again. His compassions were there every morning again. And so you can look forward with expectation for new mercies and compassions for tomorrow. Also when you face difficulties and trials. Mercy is like manna. Do you remember how the children of Israel walking through the wilderness uh, to the promised land each day? They, they woke up and there was manna for them to eat. There was no grocery store for them to stock up for the week. And if they tried to collect more manna than they needed, it would spoil overnight. And God was trying to teach the people of Israel to trust him for their daily needs and for their daily bread. And God's mercy, Jeremiah says, is like manna. He has new mercies for every new day. New mercies for every new challenge. New compassions for every new trial. We're not meant to live on yesterday's mercies. We don't have to live on stale mercies. Old mercies. Every morning there are new displays of mercy. For the believer in Jesus Christ. It's like a married couple who has been married to, uh, together maybe for three decades. And in the morning, the husband wakes up and he opens his eyes and he sees the face of the woman whom he has loved since forever, it seems. And he kisses her forehead and as she opens her eyes, she hears him say, Honey, I love you today. And what does, the husband, what does the wife say in response? Will she say, did you not love me yesterday then? No, she's going to say, well, me too. I love you today too. You see, when he says, I love you today, it doesn't express any change in his commitment to her. She knows when he says, I love you today, he's giving a fresh expression to an established fact. That's what the Lord does for those who trust in him. He finds fresh ways to express an established fact every day, every morning. He finds fresh ways to express his love and mercies every morning through Christ. You don't know what expression of mercy you're going to get. But you wake up every morning. And the believer can expect new mercy every morning. Now, how many things can you count on every morning? You go to bed at night, and by the time you wake up in the morning, the things you care about so much can be gone. The things we don't want taken from us can be taken from us overnight. Everything can change overnight. Our health. My father one night went to bed completely healthy. And in the morning, he'd had a stroke. And he's never been the same. 
Our health can change overnight. Our financial situation can change overnight. Our family can change overnight. Our career. (coughs) But whatever changes, the Lord promises that if he wakes me up in the morning, there will be new mercy for whatever the day may bring. There will be providing mercies, uh, forgiving mercies, strengthening mercies, comforting mercies, fresh tokens of his mercy and compassion for every day. And thinking over all this, Jeremiah sums it up with this confession. The third thing he says, great is thy faithfulness. Notice in the first two confessions, he is speaking about the Lord. Now we hear him speaking to the Lord. That's how you know you've got your theology right. When your theology results in doxology, when sound doctrine leads to true praise, When you not only speak about the Lord, but you also speak to the Lord in confession and worship. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, faithfulness gives us a picture of something supporting us, steadying us. This same word is used to describe the support that Aaron and Hur gave to Moses as his hands were lifted up to God in prayer. Aaron and Hur were supporting him, steadying him. And we've known people like that. Someone passing through a hard time might say, my husband has been a rock to me. He's been steadying me. He's been supporting me. He's been that kind of a steadfast influence during my difficult time. But that's what the Lord is above all. He's faithful. He's dependable. He keeps his promises. Think about some of the ways in which he has shown his faithfulness. While he's faithful in affliction. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me. He's faithful in affliction. He's faithful when we face temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. He's faithful in sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. He's faithful in forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's always faithful. 2 Timothy 3 verse 13. He abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And I wonder if that's your confession. And can you sing that today? 
And I know we're in church. And we might want to, on a day like today, sing that famous hymn. But it can be easy to sing, Great is thy faithfulness on good days. At a wedding, an anniversary, a graduation, a promotion, when things are going well, but can you sing this on bad days? In the midst of the brokenness of your life, with pain in your heart, with a bad report from your doctor, with financial turmoil that you don't know how you're going to deal with, or when there are family tensions, you don't know how to solve them. Can you say, Lord, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but this I still believe great is thy faithfulness. And the unusual thing it says, the unusual thing Jeremiah says is, great is thy faithfulness. It's not often that we talk about someone showing great faithfulness and others showing small faithfulness. I mean, in a certain sense, you're either faithful or you're unfaithful. Either you're faithful or you're not faithful. I mean, there's a word for a husband who is faithful 90% of the time to his wife. A husband who is 90% faithful to his wife is an unfaithful man. But with God, God is only faithful, always faithful, unwaveringly faithful, Constantly faithful, resolutely faithful. He's always there for you, never lets you down, and will not quit on you no matter how difficult and dark your way may be. There is no shadow of turning with him. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to say. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father. Have you seen it? Do we praise him for it? Does it humble us? Or do we just take it for granted? I heard a story of a couple uh, visiting for the first time Old Faithful, one of the geysers in Yellowstone National Park, that geyser that erupts with great regularity, that the park rangers have a clock of when it will erupt again. And this man and his wife went to that geyser and they went uh, to the inn for lunch across from Old Faithful. They went to the Old Faithful Inn for a bite to eat. And uh, as the clock Counted down to the next eruption, this man and his wife left their tables like the other guests at this restaurant, and they went to the large window to watch the geyser erupt again. It was stunning to see. And the tourists all ooed and they awed and took their pictures and all the rest. And the husband was surprised nonetheless by the busboys and the waitresses who kept doing their work, filling water glasses and cleaning tables without being impressed by old faithful. 
They had been in the presence of old faithful so long that it had lost its wonder and its awe. Is that not a danger for you and me? That we take the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God for granted and we lose the sense of wonder. You know what we need? A living relationship with the Lord. That's our third point. Yes, there is the backdrop of despair and there is the confession of hope, but the way to enjoy that is through a relationship in grace. Our third point, the relationship in grace. Verse 24, The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. Jeremiah has spoken to others about the Lord in verse 22. In verse 23, I already pointed that out. He shifts to speaking to the Lord. And now he begins to speak to himself about the Lord. Or or maybe better said, his soul is speaking to him. Now, Sometimes we speak to our souls. But there are times when our souls speak to us and remind us of things that we had forgotten and remind us of things that we had lost sight of. And Jeremiah's soul is reminding him, the Lord is your portion. The Lord is my portion. And portion refers to an inheritance, an endowment, a possession. It's real estate language. It's used in Numbers 18 to describe how the children of Israel came into the promised land. And every tribe of Israel received a portion of land except for the tribe of Levi. What was the explanation why the Levites did not receive um, a plot of land? Numbers 18 verse 20. The Lord will be their portion. The Levites were left off the list. Why don't they get... Uh, land well because the lord will be their portion he is all their need he is all they need rather and he's all that you and i need someone has said the one who has god and many other things in his life has no more than the one who has god alone the lord is my portion Jeremiah says that not at a high point, you realize, but at a low point. When so much has been lost, so much has been destroyed, so much has been taken away. But when everything has been taken away, and he looks at the devastation around him and the turmoil around him, everything being taken away, Jeremiah still has the Lord. That's the comfort for the believer. If you lose everything... But you have the Lord still. By grace. Through faith. But if you don't have the Lord. Even if you have many things. And even if you have much stuff. But if you don't have the Lord. Then you miss what Jeremiah is singing. About the mercies of the Lord. And his compassions that fail not. And the faithfulness of the Lord that gives hope in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of strife, in the midst of life, and in the midst of death. And then you're on a slippery cliff. That's what Asaph says, Psalm 73. 
Yeah, Asaph had been jealous of the wicked, of the ungodly. And then he realizes when he came to the house of God that they were on slippery ground at the edge of a cliff and all it took was a little push and they would slip down to destruction in the blink of an eye. But Asaph, while he was struggling in that psalm and he was shaken in his faith in that psalm, he confesses, but I have the Lord still. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. And there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. Jeremiah has the Lord still. Asaph has the Lord still as his portion. And Jesus, too, had the Lord as his portion, even in the hours of great suffering on the cross. Even then he could say, the Lord is my portion. People have pointed out, rightfully so, that he could not call God his father. At a certain point in the agony on the cross. So he didn't call him father. At a certain point while he was suffering on the cross. But he did say, my God. My God, he is saying what Jeremiah is saying. The Lord is still my portion. God is still my God. I can't fathom this, but do you catch something of the my? That even in Jesus' deep suffering as God forsook him, God was still his God. It's as if Jesus is saying, even in this forsakenness that I'm experiencing on the cross, great is thy faithfulness. And with Jesus, you can go through this life, even with all the trials that you face and all the challenges you encounter, you can go through this life and know his mercies and his compassions. And his faithfulness. He gives more than enough. He is more than enough. Amen. Let us sing Psalter number 204.